Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3 Interlude, The Next End of the World, The Rebirth of Catastrophism by Ben Davidson. Uh, and we are going to be doing Chapter 6, and that title of the chapter is called The Next Cycle. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to thank all you guys who tune in and listen all the time. You know, if you like the podcast, you know, please thank you so much. Share it with your friends. Uh, share it with people who might be interested in this in the, in the books that I've read so far as well. And if you really like the the podcast, you can go to my page at anchor.fm slash prep and go to the support button and click on that. And for small monthly donations... Uh, if you feel like it, um, really go a long way to helping support future episodes of the show as well. Thank you so much for considering that. And without further ado, let's get into chapter six. Earth's magnetic field motion weakening. We have mentioned the ongoing magnetic shift of Earth numerous times already. Here are the details. Following the Gothenburg excursion 12,000 years ago, the field of Earth peaked in strength 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. Its peak led to more of a plateau than a downward slide, at least until 1859. In 1859, the Earth's magnetism was still very strong, but the North Magnetic Pole took off. The magnetic poles are expected to meander around the polar region a few kilometers each decade. Until 1859, that remained the case, even though the South Pole had already appeared to lose its way, leaving the Antarctic continent and moving towards the Indian Ocean. While the South Magnetic Pole continues a slow march to the north, the North Magnetic Pole began racing faster and faster from northern Canada across the Arctic to where now it has crossed the point where its track is no longer going north, but it rather has gone over the top and is now heading towards south, towards Siberia. The North Magnetic Pole is blazing a path that has accelerated to dozens of kilometers per year, which appears to be on a collision course with the South Magnetic Pole. Logic must suggest that poles should remain geographically opposite to each other as they flip, but that's simply not what is happening. In addition to the hastening of the polar shift, the strength of the field has gone from a slight slope downward to a troublesome decline. Earth lost a few percentage points of its field in the thousands of years from its peak in the mid-1800s, but in the year 2000, an international team including members of NASA and the World Center for Geomagnetism concluded that the Earth had lost 10%, roughly 10% of its magnetic field since the mid-1800s. This number was updated to 15% in 2010 by the European Space Agency's SWARM mission to monitor the magnetic field. In 2014, the head of SWARM announced that these trends were continuing, even though new percentage numbers were not presented then or as of 2020, and that we had gone from about losing about 5% of Earth's field per century, referring to the 1800s and 1900s, to 5% per decade in the 2000s. The acceleration of the field loss matches the acceleration of Earth's magnetic pole's motion. Much of the geomagnetic science surrounding the ongoing shift focuses on the South Atlantic Anomaly, which is the weakest and fastest changing segment of Earth's field. However, in 2017, the other side of the world began to endure a shift as well. 
This acceleration of the field shift was detected at ground stations and satellites, occurring overtop the Pacific core mantle boundary plume of density and conductivity differential, just as the South Atlantic anomaly is above the African plume. The recent acceleration was not fully analyzed and reported in the journals until 2020. The current rate of field loss leaves us until about 2030 or 2040 before the global grids have serious problems and the weather becomes significantly affected. The best estimate is 2040 to 2060 for the reversal moment. If Earth endures a more significant acceleration of the ongoing event, the timeline could become months to a few years until the collapse. And it would certainly be shorter than what it would take to make the peer-reviewed science literature. 1859 was not merely the year the modern magnetic shift began, but it was also the year the greatest solar storm in modern times, the only recent event strong enough to become to come close to the induction mechanisms described in Chapter 5. A coincidence? The only superflare from the sun in centuries happened at the same time the Earth began its magnetic downward spiral. In 1859, or sorry, the 1859 solar storm is thought to be a 100 to a 200 year event. Other super flare cycles are thought to be 1,000, 3,000, and 6,000 years. These not only indicate a harmonic power output cycle, but the next harmonic, 12,000 years, is precisely what we're watching for next. I have concluded the ongoing shift since that 1859 super flare coincides with the solar system entry into the galactic current sheet. Since then, we have seen changes on other planets of our solar system and the nearby stars ahead of us in line to take the sheet impact. This is important because if the sheet is to explain the Earth changes ahead of the solar micronova, the other planets should be changing too. Changing planets in the fall of Pluto. Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto all show signs of considerable recent change. What's more, each of the changes either directly or indirectly implicate a changing magnetic state of the planet. The indirect evidence come in the form of atmospheric changes that are known to be modulated on Earth by space weather, therefore implying that a varying magnetic and solar wind interaction is underway on those planets. On Venus, the fastest winds were recently reported to be 33% faster than normal. Compared to Earth, this is, tremendous, this is a tremendous change at the extreme weather level. Imagine Category 7 hurricanes. They, there were recently reported phosphine signatures in Venus's upper atmosphere, never seen there before, possibly churned up from the lower altitudes due to the atmospheric changes. There are numerous peer-reviewed works on the solar wind modulation of Earth's winds, especially near the top of the atmosphere and including the most intense storms. This solar wind interaction couples with Earth's magnetic field and it could do the same with induced fields of a changing Venus. Moving out in the solar system, Mars has been warming faster than Earth and recent insight lander data, uh, data shows an unexplainable uptick in seismic activity. There are hundreds of peer-reviewed works on the solar modulation of climate, but also the seismic triggering mechanisms, and this correspond with numerous pre-earthquake electromagnetic phenomena like ULF, atmospheric electricity, or geomagnetic changes. 
This science is becoming mature with multiple textbooks existing on the subject of solar and electromagnetic forcing and seismicity. A magnetic change on Mars could help explain both the seismic activity and the temperature changes. Jupiter is an easy one. The great red spot is changing. Red Spot Jr. was born. A stripe disappeared and reappeared, and strange radio emissions have been detected from its radiation belts. The atmospheric changes on Jupiter are well explained by a magnetic shift that alters the interaction with the solar wind, but the strange radio signals of Jupiter come from charged particles trapped and accelerated in its magnetic fields. Therefore, stranger altered radio emissions are direct evidence of a change in the planet's magnetic field. Saturn is having an atmospheric anomalies as well. Most notable is the cyclical 30-year superstorm, which correlates with Saturn's 30-year orbit, coming many years early in 2010. It is a perihelion storm, which means it happens when it's closest to the Sun in orbit. A perihelion storm indicates an interaction with the Sun, and the early arrival of the storm indicates an enhanced interaction, which is possibly due to a weakening magnetic shield. If its field weakens, the atmosphere could get tricked into thinking it's at perihelion. This may be what happened. Uranus and Neptune have shown storm anomalies, but also auroral anomalies. The auroral, and auroral anomalies are easily and perhaps only explained by a changing interaction between the planetary magnetism and the Sun, pointing to an intrinsic magnetic change. Pluto has already begun the crescendo of its disaster. Its atmosphere has collapsed. Pluto's atmosphere was expected to reduce beginning in 1989 after its perihelion. As it moves further away from the Sun, the atmosphere was supposed to cool, condense, and reduce itself. However, the pressure of the atmosphere increased until at least 2016. When another measurement was taken in 2019, the atmospheric pressure had dropped 20%. Data from, 20, 000, data from 2018 seems to suggest it had not stopped increasing pressure yet, and so a rapid collapse is looking likely. This is an incredible change, even in three years. It doesn't fit the orbital variation timing or expected speed of change, and we must return to the best known way to strip a, a planet's atmosphere, take away its magnetic protection. Of course, we are not intimately monitoring the magnetic fields of other planets like we do the Earth, and no definitive statements can be made about those planets' magnetism or the causation of their planetary changes. However, this is a lot more coincidences to add to that list of ours. If the sheet is here and is causing the magnetic changes on Earth, then as we wait for the Sun to succumb as well, we should see the sort of changes on other planets that would expect from a changing magnetic interaction with the solar winds. This is exactly what we do see. It is notable that not only is Pluto the furthest studied atmosphere in the solar system, but its position is directly in line with the center of the galaxy from the Sun. It is smaller, weaker, and slightly further into the sheet than the rest of the solar system. Ominous Signs at Nearby Stars In late 2019, a professor at Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics who wishes to remain anonymous was challenging the entire paradigm of catastrophism. We had pretty much managed to get up to here the, through the other planet's evidence with him not being able to crush this narrowly focused version of catastrophism. 
When Pluto was announced to have undergone such a change, it surprised and invigorated him, and he was the first to ask me, why have we not identified the other nearby stars reacting to the galactic sheet? In particular, should we not be looking to the closest stars in line with the center of the galaxy? He had a great point, but was it even possible? Had they gone off in merely the last few decades of good astronomical science, or did we miss them? Would they react at all? Just like our impetus to search the other planets for signs of change, we must do so with the nearby stars. The main challenge is that none of our neighboring stars are like the Sun, as most are dwarf stars, or in the case of Alpha Centauri A and B, they are locked in a close binary and doubled magnetic protective system. It was difficult for astronomers to observe slight changes in light towards the center of the galaxy until the maturation of modern radio telescope data and optical IR UV satellites. The window is small. Despite the challenges, the red dwarf stars nearby are providing the terrifying evidence. Barnard star is six light years away towards the general center of the galaxy and until about 20 years ago was believed to be a non-flaring star. It is old and had no previous instances of flaring, but it not only roared to life with a powerful outburst, but it did so with the energy seen commonly in much younger stars. It has remained active, defying previous decades of observation. About a decade later, it was Proxima Centauri, the closest star at just four light years away and also in the general direction of the galactic center. It has long been known to be a flare star, with detailed analysis of its flaring activity extending back decades. The largest and most powerful flare on record came in 2012 at about 10 times stronger than any other. This was the first official super flare, witnessed from Proxima. Even with modern astronomical technology, there is no way to tell if these were superflare or a micronova event on the Proxima and Bernard stars, but we just know they both had unprecedented outburst activity and did so in order from the galactic center, with the sun following next in line. But the sun doesn't stand next in line all by itself. Similar activity was noted in 2020 at AD Leonis which is north of our sun in the galaxy and about the same distance from the center, meaning it is not much ahead or behind in terms of the galactic current sheet impact timeline. AD Leo is smaller and weaker. In this instance, think of it like a toddler standing next to you amidst an increasingly strong wind. You may last longer than the toddler next to you, but those in front of you are falling in line right at you, and they are starting to fall by your side as well. These three stars, Bernard Star, Proxima, and AD Leo, are even less open to conclusive statements than the other planets. But the point was answering a legitimate charge from a respected professor who was asking if we see the stars behaving differently in a line towards us. We do indeed. A weaker star in line with us has fallen already as well, and the sheet progresses onward. Given the size and strength of both Alpha Centauri A and B and their shared magnetic protection, I do not expect an outburst from them at all. So we have evidence of a cycle of varying magnitudes of disaster, including a magnetic shift, great floods, rapid freezing of some areas, and isotopes that demand a Nova level answer. The next shift is here, evidenced by Earth's changing magnetism. 
by the changes on other of the other planets and stars and by their matching up with the timeline we're due the solar micronova happens to be the only way to explain all the evidence including the impactors stars can and do micronova recurrently and do not need anything but a change in space environment or output power to do so the trigger for a cyclical event on the sun can occur in at least two ways by crossing the galactic current sheet accretion and electrical distribution of outflow disruption of outflow it would be on a fairly regular cycle and the sheet does indeed exist at the galactic level as it does at the solar level looking at the situation in reverse this galactic cycle should clearly be imprinted in geological evidence in some form and there is not another direction of evidence in the field that could qualify let alone have the wide and encompassing congruence presented by the current theory the sun is next so now what what is the best way to judge the current timeline with the next event ongoing already with minimal ability to constantly monitor the strength of earth's magnetic field and no way to directly monitor the galactic current sheet the issue comes down to what to watch for in the coming years how do we gauge the timeline and how close we are to various stages of the cycle how close is the micronova how long will Earth's power grid last with the weakening magnetic field? Will the weather become unmanageable as the geoelectric dynamics change? There are a number of geo geophysical phenomena that can be easily monitored, and one of them is lightning. I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico from 2015 to 2019. Almost immediately upon moving there, I noticed that lightning was different in the dry high desert. There was plenty of cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning, plenty of cloud to ground lightning, but the return strokes were amazing. When lightning struck the ground, the ground often struck back. The lightning would strike upwards numerous times. Scientists have recently discovered how a change in thunderclouds can stir, stir the capacitized energy in the ground to create these return strikes. This is not a new phenomenon, but it is regulated to the, uh, to the biggest bolts and the highest elevations at least the ones that get thunderstorms. Scratch that, it was relegated. The lightning in the summer, in the northern summer of 2020 was off the charts. More return strokes of greater magnitude and in lower elevations and in weaker storms than expected. We had been expecting a geomagnetic jerk in 2020 based on data from ESA's swarm mission, and it appears a significant geoelectric event indeed took place. When you remember that 2017 began a significant change at the Pacific fields as well, the widespread changes began to make begin to make sense. We came to turn this we came to term this uptick in return stroke lightning activity as an earth discharge event due to its geoelectric accurate description. Why is this a sign of the weakening of the magnetic field? As Earth's magnetic field weakens, more particulate particle energy from cosmic rays can enter Earth's system. The Earth and space maintain a certain electromagnetic equilibrium, and this is normally maintained via subtle magnetospheric and ionospheric processes, with help from strong lightning in the global electric circuit of the atmosphere and ground. When Earth is taking in more energy due to a weaker magnetic field, we have more to discharge and this is occurring in an increasingly energy deficient space environment.
Both of these changes mean the Earth has to do a lot more in the discharge phase to maintain the electrodynamic equilibrium with near-Earth space. In December 2020, the Arctic was announced to have undergone a similar spike in lightning. An enormous part of our textbook, textbook, Weatherman's Guide to the Sun, is the evidence of cosmic ray triggering of lightning and other geophysical phenomena. A weakening magnetic field lets in more of these cosmic rays. This is why we should monitor the, monitor the lightning severity during this event. This electrodynamic change brings up another point. Our technological way of life will not be sustainable when the field drops below a certain level. Literally, any event in the solar wind would induce tremendous ground currents and atmospheric changes. The global power grids will be lost, and that means no heat, AC, gasoline, ATM, phone, water, refrigeration, etc. Side note, also no internet and no podcast streaming. So download these or get his this book off of his website and um, physical copies are good. And sidebar. No stores, no banks, no government, no police, no 911, no hospital facilities. It's just you and everyone else. Hungry, thirsty, trying to survive, practicing for the real test to come from the sun and the earth. Is that when the field is 50% down? 60? 75%? Nobody knows. But it largely depends on solar activity. It is definitely well before we actually hit the magnetic minimum. If earth took the same level storm today as the five or six largest of the 1900s, we could already see continents go dark due to the weaker protection of the planetary magnetism. If the sun does very little, it could still be years away to a few decades away. At 5% loss per decade, last ESA estimates from 2014 and 15, Earth is currently down 20-25%. to 25%. Therefore, solar activity becomes another great thing to monitor. We have excellent expectations of how significantly certain solar activity will act upon the planet. For example, a strong solar wind shockwave at 600 kilometers a second might be expected to cause a level 1 or 2 geomagnetic storm. A scale of is 1 to 5, and 5 is the worst, if it is impacted in isolation. If such an event were to produce a level 4 or 5 geomagnetic storm, we might have to further question the integrity of the magnetic field. While lightning is a local and multi-component geophysical phenomenon, gauging space weather observations versus expected effects is easy and global. The data streams are very robust. Lighting and space weather are two of the things we track and monitor as part of the core coverage of our daily program updating the science and observational data pertaining to this event. The tracking of daily data is one of the only ways we will notice the major changes before the world goes dark. Having a head start will make or break survival for some people. It's just a fact. If we get more information on other planets, other stars, specific data in the magnetic field strength, great, but I'm not counting on it. Luckily, all the journals, observatories, and universities' news pages where such science would be announced are on our list of daily checks for the show as well. We also monitor seismic activity to a considerable degree. The state of science is excellent in pinpointing depth of fracture and when the low-velocity zone endures an earthquake, it is known. Significant activity, 10 times increase from normal, at the crust metal boundary near 500 to 200 kilometers in depth 
might signal the unlocking of the crust is beginning. And again, that won't sneak by our daily checks either. This one is very easy to monitor for now, but I question whether the world will lose electricity before the crust unlocks. The, on the sun, we have excellent expectations of what different light wave, different light wavelengths should show and how the solar phenomena like sunspots and coronal holes should appear. Any change in the outer structure of visible density in the well-studied wavelengths will signal that the sun is succumbing to the galactic sheet and that the time is nearing for the micronova. We monitor the sun in detail every day as well. Please be aware, I do not believe one bit that we will have our electrified way of life when the sun sheds its outer layer like a snake, and there will be no global monitoring of lightning, no news, no satellites of images, no images, no satellite images of the sun, and no solar wind or geomagnetic activity data. What we are watching for is the time when the Earth's changes take away the ability to have an electrified way of life. The next day, the chaos begins and you will need to understand how to make it at the moment. What it means when the sun goes red or black, what it means when the stars and moon move the wrong way in the sky, and you will need to have your short and long-term plans in place. There is a lot of surviving to do between the loss of civilization and the solar micronova, crustal displacement, and the next era of the Earth. And then he lists where the show appears, uh, spaceweathernews.com, suspiciousobservers.org, uh, the observers, the O in observers is a zero, observatoryproject.com, the YouTube channel is Obs suspicious observers, again, zero for the O in observers, and facebook.com observatory project. Planning a collection of advice and ideas. So again, now what? We have a good idea of what to watch for, but you cannot fully prepare with just your eyes and your mind. There is no question that having a good location and preparation can go a long way in helping you survive, even if it is only until the great wave forces a relocation. There are a number of critical questions to ask yourself, especially since we are all likely to be in that survival mode prior to the solar micronova, and the answers to each question necessitate different survival strategies. Where do you live? Do you live in a big city or a rural area, near a beach or on a mountain? in a tropical latitudes or somewhere in the line of with Alaska. First, big cities will be death traps. Getting out is a nightmare and a crisis, potentially impossible, and you can only take so much with you. Your chances of survival drop to nearly zero. If you have to evacuate your home without a plan, and in big cities, you must evacuate or play the no food but lots of hungry people game. As I just implied, cannibalism is expected to occur to some degree, out of sheer survival necessity in the big cities. That might be a bit of a stretch, but we'll see. An interesting part of Thomas's work was the study of, of eliminating magnetic field exposure to mice, a potential assimilation of the magnetic minimum of the field reversal. The mice became violent and enraged in rape and cannibalism. Okay, that's, that's true. I forgot about that. You either need to be out of the cities before society collapses or be aware enough of the current situation to get a few hours to today's head start on everyone else. If you're in Alaska, you're prepared to potentially wind up in the equator or deal with hurricanes. If you live in Costa Rica, are you prepared to endure eight months of snow a year? If you live in the perfect place today, do you have supplies or know how to travel 100s of miles 
hundreds of miles on foot to a safe space if the crustal shift puts you in a bad place. Let's start with the basics of material prepping. To survive, you need food, water, and to shield from the elements of nature. Even in the friendliest climate, you experience some extreme temperatures and storms. Since nobody knows for sure what crustal shift will tilt to the world, or where they'll where the crustal shift will tilt the world, although we offer some ideas in the back material of this book, it makes sense to prepare for as much as possible. When it comes to storing food, the important thing to consider are calories, nutrition, and longevity expiration date. While I cannot and do not openly advocate for eating expired food when survival is on the line, a smell, look, taste test usually tells the human senses if something is safe to eat. Again, this is a survival mood move, not a general rule. Do not underestimate the usefulness of spices and certain liquids. Iodized salt can not only preserve meats for considerably longer than they otherwise would be preserved, but the iodine helps protect your body from certain radiation exposures. Apple cider vinegar is an amazing multifunction drink, and in a pinch, it can be a disinfectant as well. Vinegar has numerous uses as well. Garlic can help your immune system, which will go undergo great stress for numerous reasons, from the nutritional changes to radiation to the emotional strain of the event. Learn about what common household products were available and used in pre-industrial times. And then he has an asterisk from the uh, radiation exposure comment. And this is that. It says, on the topic of radiation, the nuclear plants are a considerable problem in any no electricity analysis. Will they all melt down? One should take comfort in knowing that people have returned near Fukushima and a great many exposures in Chernobyl did not result in extreme reactions. If you can find the online videos of by Galen Windsor, you will be further eased by the words of a man who was in the thick of nuclear history of America. As the former plutonium guru of the USA, who then began calling out the government over unrealistic risk evaluations, he gave evidence that they are wanting the spent fuel for themselves as a free energy source. Most people do not know that is usable, not waste. It produces electricity right through the nuclear decay processing and can be harnessed without the intermediate step of heating water to spin a turbine. In the Great Wave, most nuclear plants will be washed to the bottom of the sea or covered with unfathomable amounts of mud and muck. The remainder that is exposed is bad, but not the nightmare many have imagined. The dust, ash, and snow in the atmosphere will be an excellent trapping agent for radioactive particles as well. Again, that name was Galen Windsor, their nuclear scare scam. Storing large amounts of water can be challenging, and keeping it fresh is another matter. For this reason, I consider the optimal land choice to also have either flowing water nearby, an existing well, or well-researched springs. In the case of a well, remember that electricity will be a thing of the past, and you will need a manual option to operate it. Even if you think you are situated in the middle of nowhere, personal protection will be paramount. Not only will everyone who, who survives the event be in some desperation mode, but you may be hunted. You may need to hunt. You can address both of these with one tool. Gun, crossbow, something. Speaking of tools, there will be no need for a phone, computer, etc. But pre-industrial tools will be very useful. First aid kits should be considered essential for every home already. Get one if you don't have one. If you have pets, get a pet first aid kit as well. Other items that are helpful are compasses, binoculars, 
something to make a fire, I recommend a frenzel lens, and tools like a hammer saw, a clamp, etc. Ropes and heavy-duty wires have innumerable, innumerable uses from shelter construction to rescue recovery operations. If you live by the ocean, a <clears throat> uh, net helps to fish, especially in the period of survival between the societal blackout and the micronova. But if you live in a forest and mountains, uh, perhaps traps and snares are a better investment. In the mountains, a sled may be worth your life, and on the beach, that may be a knife. Then you consider the big event. Living away from people on a desert island won't help if the sea rises dozens of feet above your head, or the fault line under you splits open the world. Atmospheric conditions and impactors may necessitate earth shelter, and yet to be underground when the crust shifts or the ocean comes may be a disaster as well. I have long believed that caves, mines, or bunkers in high elevation areas, preferably rural mountains, provide the greatest protection for many of the unexpected events and are less vulnerable to inundation. As I mentioned, the highest peaks can't be touched by the waves, even if the waves can make it across the continents. The Big Five Land Checklist 1. Rural Location 2. Mountainous Terrain 3. Caves or Mines 4. Reliable Water Source 5. No danger, like volcanoes or fault lines. One thing about the worst-case global wave scenario that I have found is greatly, misunderst- great, is greatly misunderstood as a character of that wave. Some people are scared a wave hundreds of feet high is going to come rushing over them. It's not. The math on it is quite simple, and it helps if we just take the shocking and not at all expected scenario where the Earth's rotation stops entirely in one hour and the oceans keep going. Even at the equator, where rotation is nearly a thousand miles per hour, this requires a deceleration of only 17 miles per hour each minute to stop in one hour. Every time you have ever been in a car, you have likely hit those decelerations in only a few seconds. This is not going to send anyone flying in the atmosphere or oceans into a violent massive twit towering wave, but it will instead send both on a fluid dynamic super hold on but it will instead send both on a fluid dynamic super high tide instead of a huge cresting wave imagine that the water level rises by a foot every minute and it lasts for a day water is an incompressible liquid unless under industrial pressures there are nowhere near what it will be which are nowhere near what will be unleashed on the planetary scale and the inertia of the oceans will be allowed to push and push. The winds we've discussed, and may help here as well. This means that the water will be able to rise high and break through the valleys of the mountain ranges to assess inland regions and cover the continents. It also means that mountain ranges must be judged based on the surrounding lands, not in overall, not on overall evaluation from sea level. This is because of wave height during run-up, just like you see on the beach. At a beach, the wave may begin running uphill at one inch tall, but feet up the hill it remains nearly as tall and continues until it finally breaks much higher than the ocean wave is tall. This momentum and incompressibility is why the waves can run over the world. It is not about the wave height, it is about the momentum of the oceans. And on page 101, there's a nice little diagram of that explanation. For example, 
if the wave is coming from California, if the California coastline eastward, I'd rather be at 1,500 feet up in California than 50 feet above the Colorado Plains, even if that Colorado location is 6,000 feet above sea level. These continental waves do not need to be thousands of feet high to climb a mountain range. They just need the push behind them. Elevation relative to sea level is relative to the surroundings. It matters. One thing that should immediately come to mind is how impossible this would be to survive in antiquity, but how easy it might be with a bit of preparation. Unlike our ancestors living inland who had no reason to have flotation devices, we can foresee this event and use even a simple makeshift craft to float away on the rising waters. We can even take things with us if large and sturdy enough. I found that a version using plastic barrels, wood, and rafting ropes can make for a sizable flotation structure for very little money. If you have a boat you pull on a truck, it is basically already set up to meet rising waters and float away. With as much debris as I expect, a life vest may even let you get to something that floats. But a planned craft can take supplies, so that is vastly better. Inflatables are not recommended due to that some debris likely to exist in the water and even the wind. They will shred the soft plastic, hard plastic and wood are the best bet for a makeshift version of this craft. <coughs> if the earth tilts 90 degrees as Thomas White in Pentagon su- and the Pentagon suggested, the wave will not come from the west everywhere, but come from the south and the Americas and South America, Africa, and from the north towards Australia and Siberia. The sloshing back of the oceans would run well north into the Indian subcontinental continent and also south to the normal beaches of the Baltic and North Seas. Not only do Thomas' new pole positions match the current tracks observable today, which he could not have known, but the event where the internal core mantle boundary plumes break down and new ones emerges at the poles, like a rare cosmological event, would tilt the Earth 90 degrees and relatively back each alternating cycle. I support this scenario most of all. The new poles should be by the Bay of Bengal and Ecuador, and the equator would run through Greenland, Western Canada, New Zealand, Antarctica, Northeastern Africa, and Southwestern Europe. The axis of tilt would be in East Africa and the Pacific, exactly where the current core mantle plumes are found. However, since this is truly unpredictable, and we are only human beings doing our best, I do not recommend trying to gauge the wave direction from your location. Just prepare to float if you have to, or get to a high elevation. We also have no idea what land will rise or fall. There could be an Atlantis waiting to sink somewhere right now. It is possible your location may wind up thousands of feet higher than it is now. Clothing is also key. You can always take clothes off, but if you don't have them to put on, it could be a problem. Socks are as important as your boots. They're that part of the movie Forrest Gump was true. Be ready to endure freezing conditions, wind-burning gusts, and difficult foot travel. If you have the means to cross-country ski or snowshoe supplies, those could help. I would not suggest that a scuba suit would be useless, but a life vest will be will probably be better and much less expensive. If you have never lived in a warm climate, you may not know that short sleeves or a tank top may not be the best for your exposure travel. 
if there is low humidity, Arabic desert gear protection from sunlight while allowing natural body cooling. A very light long sleeve t-shirt works as well. I have a sun hat and a winter hat and I think that is about fine for most people. Sunglasses are also important for your eyes since the solar luminosity will be different and potential snow reflectivity is known to be able to burn corneal tissue. Consider any growth children may have left to go and either prepare those supplies including shoes or be very confident in your tailoring skills. The sort of long-term planning becomes life and death when you consider medications and or potential medicine replacements when the world goes away. At some point, the supplies run out. Then it's all on you. Remember, humans manage to survive this every time, and we all descended from survivors. It's in our blood. To execute survival plans, you must know what to do and how to do it. Which supplies to use for shelter, cooking, tool making, etc. are largely going to be based on your location, supplies, economic means, and environment. It is, much more, it is a much more complex equation than planning water vessel floating is floating. This is where books or experience needs to play a role, and this is also where the mental aspect of prepping comes in. Mental prepping has two parts the information experience, and the emotional toughness. You cannot learn everything you need to survive without neglecting your current life unless you want to start surviving sooner than you have to. I am learning some things, but I am heavily relying on books, local plants, bugs, animals, uses for local trees or flowers, how to farm, how to hunt, how to build shelter, how to survive in the wild alone with a knife and a broken antler, broken ankle, not antler, uh, though that might be good too. There's a book for each of these things. The potential volume of knowledge for the blackout periods before the Micronova and the Great Wave is very large, containing pretty much everything and anything that can help in that period. You can't learn it all, but you can buy as many useful books as you can. You will also want to identify just a few key books that are critical for your bug out or water escape, because you will not be able to take much with you. These would be books essential to survival. The subject of recommendations, specific guides, books, tools, etc. is an entire book itself, and even those would need to be screened for, for applicability to your region, the expected challenges, and your budget. Take this example. If you live in Nebraska, buy some extra books on farming in colder weather. If you live in the Blue Ridge Mountains, buy some books on animal traps and building a shelter in a forest. Mental toughness can be a powerful advantage in this event. The majority of people will be like deer in headlights and will be relatively unprepared. Simply reading this book has given you a shield against mental breakdown in this event. You will already be at least one step further from the cliff than someone taking this information in for the first time. There will not be time to go buy supplies or books or maps or to figure out a plan or bug out route. It's already too late, even when the event begins. Take that step now, even if it is a can food at a time, a can of food at a time. Generations can save lives. Generations, oh boy. <clears throat> Generators can save lives, but they might as well be loud, smelly billboards telling the world you have supplies. 
so maybe better to focus on pre-electricity survival items, which are less expensive. Also, in a solar storm, most electric products will be destroyed by induction anyway. Even if you have the knowledge of money, it only buys you so much time until you need to enter a, pre a more pre-industrial survival mode. It is possible that many of us will need to employ these procedures before nature says so. Cultural unrest, wars, political turmoil, and periods of societal breakdown appear ready to occur, occur on a global scale, and at the worst time imaginable. Interestingly, this is how many ancient stories and religions claims it will occur, with the people divided before the heavens command our attention. It is likely that as the energy of our solar system is changing, so are we, as electromagnetic be beings within it. We exist every day within the atmospheric electricity connected to the core of the Earth and the ionosphere at the top of the sky. This is connected to the Sun through the interplanetary magnetic fields and to the galaxy via the Sun's helios heliospheric magnetic fields interaction with the galactic magnetic fields, <laughs> interstellar plasma, and the galactic current sheet. You should expect to get sh you should expect to get short test runs of chaos before the earth and sun demand would begin their evaluation. As for shelter, an earth sheltered home is an amazing thing to aim for. It is basically like a hobbit house built into the earth, covered by it such that in both summer and winter you are insulated. Hail cannot touch you, lightning is easily deflected in proper construction. There is no reason a Faraday cage could not surround the entire enclosure as well. Tornadoes? No problem. Shelts from cosmic rays and UV? Definitely. It is also worth considering that a lot of preparation may be being made for us. The secrecy of catastrophism suggests a plan, and the underground facilities on Earth now dwarf the known ancient cave and tunnel systems 10 to 1. In the United States, the underground facilities can likely house 10 million people or more, including the space to store months of food. Did you hear about the $21 trillion the U.S. government cannot account for? The strange, unexplained sounds underground in the fortification of tunnels in the eastern world? There may be more readiness than we realize. Uh, to pull off the greatest engineering feat imaginable, it would need to be kept secret, and I cannot find a way around that fact despite my dislike for it. This was one of the best points made in the movie 2012, which is a great movie, by the way, sidebar. Uh, yeah, do some research on that movie. Watch that movie uh, about the studio who made it and um, even referring back to the other works of this podcast, you, know, you can see some telegraphing there, at least I think so. So back to the book. This was one of the best points made in the movie 2012, that to pull off the project to save people, it had to be kept secret. If you do not think you will live to see this, will your children? It may be sooner than you think. If it seems like there's too much uncertainty and a million options, then make the choices to focus on a few key things for survival. There will be a tremendous amount of luck involved in this, but can you imagine fate god or blind luck giving you that gift of survival and you waste it because you can't handle the challenge or because you didn't prepare even after having the eyes to see what the evidence has to say what if you are meant to start the next age
I will be battling nature for my children. Won't you join me? We all came from survivors. Survival is in our DNA. And that is the end of chapter six. And for the most part, the end of the book, there is some more uh, information, uh, some images of the Earth and South Magnetic Poles and movements, uh, the scenario according to Chan Thomas and what the Earth will look like on page 110. Ooh, you actually really want to see that because uh, this is an explanation. If Chan Thomas is correct and the low velocity zones unlock and the shell rotates, it shows you the new layout for the Earth. And um, it will tell you, kind of, if it's accurate, of course, uh, where, 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 what is going to be when it happens, and you can better gauge potentially uh, where you want to end up. On page 111, it has the galactic view of the suns and what's been happening. On page 112, it's the magnetic field weakening. Uh, 113 looks like a list of uh catastrophists oh the catastrophists and the information that they uh, have in a little chart along with a little graph of i think it looks oh solar novas over time page 114 uh cold events and resulting ice ages releases and rewarming and then in 115 there's a little bits of uh some more words that i'll add right now it says, my best estimates. Earth's magnetic field will decrease to the point where modern society breaks down between 2030 and 2050. In the model presented in this book, the solar micronova, the magnetic excursion and great waves are due to occur within 10 to 40 years. I expect a reduction of 20 to 50% of Earth's biology spread between extinctions and non-extinction population reductions. I expect human losses will be 75 to 95%, mainly due to our lack of survival awareness. Nearly every country has mountain peaks that will stay dry in a great wave, even a wave that exceeds my expectations by 300%. My expectations are already high based on better safe than sorry policy. Humans survive every one of these events. It's in our blood. We are survivors. The appropriate reaction to this information is mindful consideration, contemplation, and action. The inappropriate reaction is fear. Fear is a thief of time and focus. The time between societal breakdown and the micronova great wave could be months to years. Long enough that storing supplies might not be enough. You need seeds, equipment, and knowledge or books. I expect the Earth to tilt 90 degrees, as Chen Thomas describes, along the core mantle LSVP axis. The fact that Thomas came to these conclusions, and decades later we are seeing that the magnetic poles agree, it is probably the most amazing coincidence in catastrophism. He had no access to Major White's information. Of those who get lucky at first, those who survive long term will surely have been prepared to do so. Ben Davidson. Uh, and Chan Thomas's book, by the way, is The Adam and Eve Story, uh, which is season one of this podcast. If you have not listened to it, go back and check it out. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing 
amazing book with a lot of information in it. And then on page 116, <clears throat> there it says here, uh, it's a, 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 a lined sheet. There's a bunch of blank lines. And at the top of the page, it says information relating to the sun, planets, magnetic field, interior earth structure, and more is coming out by the week. It is a good idea to keep updated notes from the morning show and other sources here. So it's just a place to take extra notes. Uh, and that is the end of The Next End of the World, The Rebirth of Catastrophism by Ben Davidson. Um, a fantastic book. I did see on his uh, webpage, otfcells.com, they appear to be back in stock. So if you want to order a physical copy for yourself and see the images, and uh, I highly recommend it. Um, once you can have it on hand, um, and you can see the images as well. Uh, once I wanted uh, to thank you all again for listening. I really appreciate those of you who do listen. Again, uh, please share this with as many people as possible. Um, that way more people will have a chance to evaluate this information and take action needed to survive. And if you do like this information and you want to continue to support the podcast, please go to uh, anchor.fm slash Ice Age Prep and go to the support button and you can make as low as 99 cents per month monthly contributions. Anything helps out to keep this podcast going. Uh, I do this on my own spare time, out of my own pocket. Um, it's not uh, generating <laughs> revenue for me in any sense of the word. And um, and I like doing it uh, to get the information out there in a more accessible way. Maybe people don't have time to read all these books. Maybe they don't want to find them. Uh, listening to them while you're commuting or driving or whatever uh, is a very good way to get this information and most of these books as far as i can tell are are not on any audio platform to listen to them uh that's the reason why i started this podcast to be that for these books um, because it needs to be done again thank you so much for tuning in we'll see you next time share share the information share the podcast if you can go to the uh, support button and uh, help me out as much as you can. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time as we continue with the regular season three series, Stone of Plenty, Seed of, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. Uh, a great book about what electricity and magnetism does to seeds and what ancient people knew about them, uh, which might be important if you need to have really fertile and robust crops in the very near future. Take care, be well, we will talk to you soon.